tell me, um, tell me if you recognize these words. I'll give you a clue. They are the lyrics to the opening verse of what was one of the most successful pop songs of, uh, I think, about three or four years ago. Uh, if you recognize them, perhaps just wave at me, uh, or if you're brave enough to have a guess, use the chat, chat function to tell us who sang this song. I wonder who might get it first. Okay, so here we go, the words of the opening verse. I won't sing them, that won't help anybody recognize them, but uh, here we go. I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Hercules and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, Batman with his fists, and clearly I don't see myself upon that list. Uh, I see a couple of things coming through the chat. Yes, well done, James. Correct on both. Um, I see a couple of others coming through. Yes, well done to those who got it. The song is called um, Something Just Like This, and it's a collaboration between the Chainsmokers and Coldplay. As I said, it's one of the most successful songs of the past few years. Uh, it's been watched, can you believe it, more than two billion times on YouTube. Even so, uh, some among us might not be familiar with it, and perhaps you didn't quite catch what he's singing about. He's singing about superheroes, the legends and the myths, Spider-Man's control, Batman with his fists. Later on in the song, he mentions Superman as well. And if you didn't catch the last line of that verse, he said, clearly, I don't see myself upon that list. I'm no superhero, he says. Well, it's a game we've all played, isn't it? Imagining what it would be like to have superhero powers, to be able to fly or to run faster than the wind uh, or to zap bolts of ice from our fingertips or some other fantastic power. Um, my kids still ask me from time to time, Dad, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And uh, I I'm sorry to say they're never very impressed with my answer. <laughs> no doubt you've been asked that question too. Now, I wonder if you noticed in the passage that was read for us that Jesus says that you have a superpower. Yes, you, you have a superpower, an ability of utterly staggering proportion, a power so immense that only God himself can overcome it. It's right there in the text, spoken from the lips of Jesus himself. But first, let's go back a bit in the story and see what prompts Jesus to say this amazing thing that he says. Well, so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus proclaiming one great fact and its implications. The fact, the kingdom of God has come near because the king has arrived. Its implications, repent and believe. His message was direct. It was often offensive. It was always divisive. We've seen Jesus cast out demons. We've seen him heal the sick, uh, cleanse the leper, restore the paralyzed, walk on water, still the storm, feed the thousands and raise the dead. All signs of the, of the fulfillment of the ages, of the changing of the times, of the conquering of the enemy kingdom and the inauguration of the forever kingdom of the great king of heaven. And now at the end of chapter 6, verse 53, we learn that Jesus was at Gennesaret, the, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And at verse 1 of chapter 7, some Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law, 
came from Jerusalem and questioned him. Now, in setting the scene here, um, we, the first thing we must realize is that this was not an innocent conversation. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, were not true and honest seekers after God who wanted to learn the ways of the kingdom from Jesus. No, they came to trap him. Back in chapter 3, in the first few verses, after Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, we told that the Pharisees went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus. And again, later in chapter 3, we're told that the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem said that Jesus was acting by the power of Satan. They're out to discredit him, to trap him, to end his ministry, even conspiring to kill him. So when we read in chapter 7 and verse 1 that the Pharisees and the scribes came from Jerusalem, what Mark means us to hear is, here come the bad guys again. The plot to kill Jesus is gaining momentum. This is not an innocent conversation. This is a confrontation. A confrontation in which Jesus is about to expose a superpower against which only God can prevail. That's the tone. That's the, that's the mood of the scene. Now, let's follow the action. Scan with me in your Bibles from verse 1 of chapter 7. Some of Jesus' disciples are eating. They've probably still got bread and fish left over from what's just happened. And they hadn't washed their hands quite the right way. And the Pharisees challenged Jesus. Why aren't your disciples washing their hands the right way? Verse 5, they're not washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. Now pause there for a second. Note this is not a hygiene concern. It's not that the disciples hadn't washed their hands at all. It's not that they hadn't washed, sorry, it, it is that they hadn't washed them according to the tradition of the elders, or as verse 3 says, according to the proper ceremony. What's going on here? Well, in Old Testament times, God had uh, required priests to wash their hands a certain way in order to serve in the tabernacle or later the temple to observe certain ceremonies before they were allowed to eat uh, the food provided for them through the temple offerings. The people of Israel would offer meat and grain and so on as part of their worship to God at the temple. And the priests were allowed to use those offerings to feed their families, but they had to follow certain ceremonies before they did so. That was God's law. But here the Pharisees complained that Jesus' disciples weren't obeying the traditions of the elders. It's not that they weren't obeying God's law. God's law doesn't say anything about how you should wash your hands before eating bread and fish. It only had to do with priests in relation to their temple service and eating of the temple offerings. It was a very specific situation that the hand-washing law dealt with. But what had happened was that through the years, the religious leaders of Israel had added to God's law, layer upon layer of extra rules and regulations. And these were then called the traditions of the elders. Your disciples, Jesus, aren't obeying the traditions of the elders, they said. Well, how did Jesus respond? First, he strips away the veneer of respectability and importance they gave those traditions by relabeling them as the traditions of men. Do you see that in verse 8? 
The Pharisees called them very grandly the traditions of the elders. Jesus calls them merely human traditions. Again in verse 9, he says, these are just your own traditions. And again in verse 13, your tradition that you have handed down. And then Jesus says one of the most staggering things you will ever hear. He says in verse 13, by your man-made tradition, you nullify or make void the word of God. Now let that sink in. Some um, Greek lexicons that I consulted say that the word nullify or make void there means to invalidate the authority of or to render powerless. Consider the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. What is the word of God? Well, how did God create everything that was created? Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 119, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 55, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Jeremiah 23, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The word of God is the expression of his own nature and character, the communication of his holiness to mankind, ultimately in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word of God is power, divine and unfathomable. And yet here in verse 13, Jesus says, human beings have the power to, by their traditions, nullify, to render powerless the word of God. This is the superpower we, we humans all have, to render powerless the word of God in our lives. To domesticate the God who created the heavens and the earth. To bring God down to our own size. To make him manageable on our terms. But rather than a superpower, we should probably call it an anti-power. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They had used this anti-power to nullify the word of God. They wanted the authority of God behind them, but on their terms. They wanted to speak in his name but for their own ends, for their own agenda. Now, with that background in mind, let's ask and answer three questions. First, what is the word of God supposed to do? Second, how do human traditions nullify the word of God? Now, these two questions really matter because uh, as we see in this passage, Jesus calls people who get these two things wrong hypocrites. Do you see that in verse 6? He says their worship is in vain, verse 7. 
In other words, God does not recognize it. They have let go of the commands of God, verse 8, rejected them, verse 9, and set up their own commands in God's place, also verse 9. Make sure you've heard that clearly. What is the word of God supposed to do? And how do human traditions nullify the word of God? Get those two things wrong. And Jesus's verdict is that you are a hypocrite who God does not recognize as a true worshiper. And in fact, you have tried to set yourself in the place of God. And our third question then will be, what does true Christian faith look like? Okay, so first question, what is the word of God? supposed to do well let's look at the incident that prompted this confrontation the disciples were eating as we said maybe leftover bread and fish and they hadn't washed their hands according to the tradition of the elders now the original laws which we find in the books of exodus and leviticus and numbers detail how priests were to go about their priestly work in the tabernacle and later the temple beg your pardon, um, the place where God dwelled among his people. The priests were to wash their hands a certain way whenever they entered the tabernacle and also when they approached the altar to present food offerings. And the penalty for not approaching God the proper way, for not treating God and the offerings made to him as was death. Now, this is supposed to teach us three things. Number one, it's supposed to teach us that God is holy. Number two, it's supposed to teach us that we are not holy. In fact, we are sinful. And number three, it's supposed to reveal the wonder of grace. The law reveals the holiness of God in that no human being may enter his presence and live. Why not? Because sin dwells inside. We are sin-stained, sin-filled, and no sin may enter the presence of the Holy One and survive. When the Lord granted uh, the prophet Isaiah a vision of himself seated on his throne, surrounded by the mighty seraphim calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response was not to dance with joy. It was to cry out, woe to me. I am ruined for I am a sinner and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When you see God rightly, the first thing you see is holiness. And next to it, your own sinfulness and peril. The priests could not enter the tabernacle, even less the most holy place, the place inside the tabernacle where God's holy presence was especially manifest, without washing first to symbolize their recognition of their sin and their need for cleansing that they were not worthy in and of themselves to enter the presence of God. The law of God reveals to us the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the wonder of his grace. Why should there be a system that allows sinful man to approach God at all? 
the mere fact that God chose to dwell in the midst of his people in a tabernacle at all shows us that in spite of their sinfulness, he remained committed to them as their covenant God, and he owned them as his own people. Sheer grace. The fact that a system of worship that allowed priests to enter the presence of God on behalf of the people at all is grace piled upon grace. There is no compulsion about, upon God to forgive sin. It is not necessary to the essence of deity to forgive. Let's summarize before we move on. What is the word of God supposed to do? What should the Pharisees have learned? What should we learn from the hand-washing laws? That God is holy. That we are sinners. And those two facts are supposed to drive us to despair such that we wonder at his grace in providing any means at all by which we may be forgiven and enter his holy presence with reverent fear rather than with guilty fear. Second question, how do human traditions nullify or render powerless the word of God? Well, what had the Pharisees done? They'd said, let's take this law and expand its application to other things. Surely God calls all his people to be holy all the time, not just priests when they're serving in the temple. So let's put washing rules all over the show. You see, they didn't start out denying the word of God altogether. They started out saying, we want to obey the law and we want to help everyone obey it. So maybe they started out by saying, priests should really wash their hands in the priestly way before they ever touch any food, not just when they're performing the tabernacle ceremonies. And then perhaps the next step, I don't know what the progression was, perhaps the next step was to say, hmm, probably the priest's wife and children should wash their hands according to the tabernacle washing procedure before every meal too. And you know, Sometimes the priests go and have lunch with their friends. Those friends really should also wash properly if they're going to have a priest in their house. And you can see, can't you, how those new rules snowball and one adds to another. And over time, they become this vast body of rules and regulations about everything under the sun. And as the centuries pass, those rules gather cultural authority. They come to be known as the traditions of the elders. And over time, everyone's become very particular about following the traditions of the elders. But they've completely forgotten what the original law was supposed to reveal. God is holy. I am not. Oh, how precious his grace. Grace that made a way for me. You see, the error was not that at some point they crossed the line and added just one rule too many. The error was before they added any rules. It was that they turned from worship of the heart to work of the hands. They were supposed to worship in reverent awe before the Holy One, recognizing and repenting of the sinfulness of their hearts, marveling at grace extended. Instead, they said, Hmm, rules. We're good at rules. Let's add some more. And they turned 
from worship of the heart to work of the hands. And the great promises of God, the covenants, the outworkings of his glorious purposes through history in anticipation of the sending of the Son to begin the consummation of all things under his glorious reign is all reduced to, hey, Jesus, your guys didn't wash their hands the right way. And the word of God, glorious in its power, beautiful in its revelation of God and of grace, is nullified, rendered powerless. Now let's consider just one application before we carry on to question three. In what ways has your religion, your Christian life, become a religion of the hands? In what ways have you drifted from true worship of the heart into going through the motions of washing your hands? Notice I did not ask, have you drifted from true worship to hand washing in any way? No, I asked, in what ways have you drifted? I assume you have. I know you have. Friends, I mean this not as a rebuke rather as an exhortation to return to true worship. You see, the Pharisee still lives in every one of our hearts, in mine no less than yours. And your sin nature and my sin nature loves the Pharisee that lives in us. <laughs> because the Pharisee in you stops you facing up to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of you. The Pharisee in you puts all sorts of boxes that you can just tick. And not face the reality. But for as long as you allow the Pharisee to appease your conscience. By constant hand washing. You separate yourself from grace. In what ways have you turned from true worship. To hand washing. In what ways have human traditions taken the place of real worship. In what ways are you just going through the motions. When we gather for worship on Sundays, are you sometimes going through the motions? Or are you approaching the throne of God's grace in confidence, trusting his mercy and knowing that from his fullness, you will receive grace to help in your every need? Do you come hungry for his word? Do you arrive desperate for grace? Or has it just become a tradition? Just a thing you do because because it's a thing you do. Let's remind ourselves where we are. The word of God is supposed to lead us to encounter the Holy One. To recognize our peril as sinful creatures before him. To marvel at grace extended to such as us. But our sin nature does not want to face the truth. And so the Pharisee in each of our hearts creates hand-washing rules for us to hide behind. To appease our consciences. Just tick the boxes. Just go through the motions and all will be well. But running away from God's holiness and ignoring our own sinfulness doesn't make it any less true. And we separate ourselves from grace. So to our final question. 
what then does true Christian religion look like? Look in your Bibles with me from verse 14. Jesus called the crowds close so everyone could hear him. And he explained that food cannot defile. It can't make you unfit for the presence of God. You eat it and digest it and it passes through and out of your body and that's all there is to it. Now he explains it in verse 19. Food cannot defile you because it doesn't enter the heart. He's not talking about the heart as a physical organ, of course. He's, he doesn't mean the heart as the, the blood pumper. He means the soul, the center of your person, the control center of your will and your thought and your affections and desires and loves. Food doesn't get in there. And that is the place where defiling happens. From verse 20 now. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that all these evils come. Verse 21, all these evils come from inside. In other words, nothing needs to enter your heart to defile it. It is already defiled. Sin already lives in there. Your heart needs no help in learning sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. They are all in there already. Now, did you notice in verse 14, Jesus called the crowd close. He wanted to be sure they all heard this. He'd already put the Pharisees in their place, but he wanted everyone to hear that what separated them from God had nothing to do with what they ate or didn't eat or with how or if they washed their hands. What separated them from God was already inside them. Don't allow the Pharisees to put all these rules on you, he's saying to them. Don't be weighed down by their traditions. Don't believe that failure to obey their traditions keeps you from God. You have a much bigger problem than that. Your hearts are defiled. You are already dirty from the inside out. Jesus wanted them all to know and to face the truth of God's holiness and their own sinfulness and to see their desperate position before the Holy One. He wanted them to know that they could never be right with God by going through the motions of religious performance because no amount of hand washing, no amount of anything washing can clean defiled hearts. He wanted them to know that true religion, the true fulfillment of all that the covenants of old pointed towards did not and does not consist in rule keeping. So how then can right standing with God be attained? If we're already stained, defiled from the very heart of our beings, and if there's nothing we can do to fix it, no amount of hand-washing religion to cleanse the soul, what hope have we? Well, look at verse 6. These people, the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their, their hearts are far from me. They claim to honor God, 
They claim that keeping all their man-made traditions is the way to honor God, but it's all just lip service. It's hypocrisy. Their hearts are far from me. True holiness, true Christian religion is this. Hearts wholly devoted to Jesus. But friends, that information in itself is not good news. Because your heart is not naturally devoted to Jesus. What lives naturally in the heart of man? Well, Jesus tells us from verse 21 what our hearts are naturally devoted to. Immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. By mere force of will, we cannot turn our hearts to Jesus. Our hearts do not naturally want Jesus. We have only one hope. And it is what Jesus has been proclaiming since the first moment of his public ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this is the gospel. Not just that Jesus died on the cross. Not just that he rose from the dead, not just that he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, but that in his great mercy, as the Apostle Peter writes, he has caused us to be born again. This is the gospel. Your heart was devoted to wickedness. And if you are not a Christian, your heart remains right at this moment devoted to wickedness. No amount of hand washing can ever cleanse your heart. Nor do you even want to cleanse it because the Pharisee in you keeps making new hand washing rules to keep you from encountering the holiness of God and your peril before him. But in his mercy, in his great mercy, he silenced your inner Pharisee brought you face to face with holiness from which you could not escape, revealed to you your need of a savior and in grace immeasurable provided just such a savior, his own son, to bear the just penalty of your sin, to transfer the merits of his righteousness to your account and even more to remove from you the old heart devoted to defiling things and gave you a new heart devoted to Jesus. Rightly then does the Apostle Peter write, the Apostle Peter from whom Mark learned his gospel, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So friends, let's put away all hand washing, Let's face up to the commands of God as they are in the scripture. Let's own up to our own inability to obey them in our own strength. Let's continue to repent and to believe the gospel. Let's adore and love and cherish the son and approach daily the throne of grace with confidence. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a sinful man and my eyes have seen 
the king. This was Isaiah's confession. And it is ours. Father, we, your redeemed, stand before you in reverent awe. You are the Holy One. But for your grace, we could never enter your presence and live. But because of Jesus, by your grace, we enter and approach a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. Father, would you help us by your spirit? Would you continue by your spirit at work in our hearts to draw us daily to face you, the Holy One, as you reveal yourself in the scriptures? To recognize our inability to live a Christ-like life in our own strength. To cry out ever more for more and more grace. To transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.